Chapter Eleven of The Gentle Persuasion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caro. The Gentle Persuasion Sketches of Scottish Life by Alan Gray. Chapter Eleven The Major. The good folks of Drumscondy set much store by old saws and proverbs. They certainly adhered to the belief that a green yule makes a fat kirkyard. It had so often come true in their own experience. So when snow fell continuously for twelve hours on a stretch one Christmas Eve, everyone heaved a big sigh of relief, as if the snow spirit had, by a touch of her wand, lifted the burden of a gloomy foreboding up went the spirits of old and young the salutations of the gossips were redolent of good cheer youngsters shouted with glee as they pelted one another with snowballs even in the church itself the infection of joy had spread and the church decorators sang snatches of carols as they hung up wreaths of red buried holly on arch and pillar and window then when the gloaming came and all met in church for the first christmas vespers their hearts went out in happy thanksgiving for the nativity which had wrought such wondrous good to them and to all mankind now there's no doubt the gentle falling of the snow had not a little to do with this happy state of things our villagers were a very simple people and somehow or other could not realise christmas to be christmas unless it was heralded by the snow to them christmas was more than a mere social feasting time they had been trained in their young days to follow the course of the church's year with reverent attention and to meditate on the special teaching that each season inculcated oh how they enjoyed the church's services at christmas tide they were transported in thought to the holy fields of bethlehem where they kept watch with the humble shepherds they heard the angelic song gloria in excelsis deo they set out to seek the new-born king and when they found him they bent in lowly adoration it did one good to note their realistic appreciation of the sweet old story of the christ child the snowstorm which began that year on christmas eve was one of the heaviest we had experienced for many winters towards the end of the year blowing commenced and the light snow was piled in great drifts traffic on the country roads was for some time suspended and railway communication was stopped on several lines of railway notably those among the hills the stoppage was of several weeks duration my dear friend and neighbour the reverend hugh arnott had gone after christmas to pay a long-promised visit to a country house in the romantic Cars of Gowrie, and his homecoming was delayed on account of the storm. Meanwhile, one of his parishioners had died and would have to be buried before he could possibly return. He telegraphed his difficulty to me, and I agreed to take the burial service. Mr. Arnott's church was in the county town, but the home of the dead girl was in the little fishing village of Carronmouth, a mile to the north. There was no church in the village at this time, but every soul in the place was a hereditary Episcopalian. I made my way down the hill from the railway to the seaside, where Carronmouth stood at the base of a great overhanging cliff, but as it was my first visit to the place I looked about in some perplexity, wondering which was the house I wanted. 
I was soon out of my dilemma. A cheery voice called out to me, This way, your reverence. I looked and saw approaching me a youngish man of middle stature, attired comfortably but plainly in a suit of dark blue, over which he wore a heavy reefer coat buttoned up to the chin. His whole appearance told that he was not one of the fishermen. I followed him into one of the cottages, in which were assembled a large gathering of silent men and women, evidently waiting for the service. The coffin of the young girl was in the ben end of the house, and there most of the women were. I retired to the butt end where the men were to put on my surplice, and as I was getting ready I could not help observing that in the horny hand of each fisherman was a well-thumbed prayer-book, the place turned up at the burial office. I noticed also that in every face there was a look of affectionate respect when my companion spoke, as he did to almost every individual. He seemed to move about and to interest himself in the arrangements, as if the dead girl had been of his own kin, and the utmost deference was paid to him. While the psalm was recited verse about by clergymen and people, I was astonished, but delighted, to hear the whole company joining in clear, earnest tones, led by my unknown friend. When the coffin was ready to be lifted, one of the women put into his hands a spotless white linen sheet, which he wrapped around the plain deal coffin, and on which he laid a wreath of sweet winter flowers. And when the procession started up the hill to the peaceful resting place on the top, it was he who walked immediately behind the coffin in the place of the chief mourner. As soon as my duty was performed, I retired to the ruins of the old church that stood in the churchyard. There I unrobed and made ready for a smart walk back to the station to catch my return train. One of the fishermen came to carry my bag, and as soon as we were well on our way, I asked him the name of the gentleman who had so aroused my curiosity. "'Oh, the major, you mean? I thought abody here about Kent the major.' He's the laird o' Carron, and owns the hale tuna Carronmouth. He bides in yon big hoose among the trees on the tap o' the hill. He's an awfy fine man. Aye, gin a the lairds were like him, ye wouldna hear say muckle grumblin' frae the workin' folk. There's no a bairn in the place he doesna ken. No, there was wee Mirren that we've just buried. She was an orphan, and the major and his lady never let her want for anything that could do her good, a the time she was sick. Aye, there's nae mony folk like the Major. Is he a wealthy man, then? No, sir, as lairds go, he's a poor man. He doesna gae himself a chance to grow rich. The rents frae the estate dinna come to a great deal, and he spends the feck o' it. When he come here, after the old laird deed, things were in a guy bad way. He made nae fuss aboot it but in his ain quiet style he set himself to the work a local improvement. The first big job he started was to repair a the cottages and to get in a regular set o' drains. There's nae half the sick fout now that there used to be. Sign he fitted up ain o' the hooses as a school and got Miss Emsley and her twa nieces to teach the bairns. There may be nae so weel trained as the toons teachers, but they can teach readin' and writin' and countin', and what's better than a, they see that our young folk ken the gospels and the catechism and the morning and evening prayer. 
Weel, he found out that there was a wheen old folk that weren't able to travel to St. James's Church, and so he gaed to the bishop and got a lay reader's licence, and knew we hae a service in the school ilka Sunday afternoon. The major reads the prayers and gaze a bit simple sermon, and his lady plays the harmonium. But that's no a he's done. He's paid the hill cost to make a new fine wee harbour, and newer boats are safe when they're new to sea. Ah, he's a grand man, the major, never thinking about himsel, but a the time planning for either folks' welfare. I was sorry when the arrival of my train cut short this interesting chat, but it was not long before I had an opportunity of coming into closer contact with the major. We met again one afternoon at Glen Douglas House, when we were formally introduced to one another. In the course of conversation the subject of golf as a healthful recreation came up. We have a capital course at Carronmouth, Mr. Gray. Some day soon you must come and spend the afternoon with me and I will take you over it. His innate modesty kept him from telling me that it also was a gift from him to his people, and that the idea was a partial carrying out of a scheme which he had formulated as a counterfoil to more questionable modes of enjoyment. Needless to say, I took advantage of this kind invitation. What a glorious afternoon that was! Our game did not amount to much, but there was ample compensation in our pleasant intercourse. Simply and unassumingly he told me of the primitive manners and customs of his fisher-folks, and of their loyal devotion to the faith of their fathers. Ignorant of many of the ways of the great world beyond them, they were, nevertheless, endowed with an amount of traditional lore that many with greater pretensions could not claim. One could easily see that he was a feudal superior of a grand type, that these homely folks were bound to him by ties of the most enduring character, that their interests were his, and his responsibility, in regard to them, a very sacred thing in his eyes. I happened to mention that I intended having lantern services for my people during Holy Week. This at once aroused his interest. Would I come to the Cairnmouth School on Good Friday evening and give his people such a service? I was only too glad to have the privilege of assisting him in his splendid work, and so on the evening named I was there. The school was crowded with fisher-folks, and right on the front bench sat the laird between two of the fathers of the place. With him and prayer and picture and meditation the evening sped. The silence was almost breathless. They had never experienced such a service before. And when I threw a beautiful reproduction of Gabriel Max's Echihomo on the canvas, the effect was marvellous. I turned to give the benediction, but it was with difficulty I could utter a word. Laird and fisherman, old and young, gazed awestruck on the man of sorrows, and tears were streaming down many a rugged face. The gentle Laird rose and said, It is all too sad and yet too sweet for me to say anything. God bless you, sir, for coming here tonight. It is a night we'll remember for a long time. The following evening saw a very different sight. All day a terrible storm had been raging and all the boats were out at sea. The women were in awful anxiety, each fearing the worst for her man or her boys. Down to the village in the afternoon came the Major, in sou'wester and oilskin coat. 
he had a cheery word of comfort and hope for all, and he did not return home till every boat came in. He was ready to shake hands with every man as he came ashore, and to remind him that he must give thanks to God for his mercy. Years have passed away since that time. The Major's sweet lady has gone to the rest of paradise. He himself, in obedience to the call of the Master, has exchanged his rank in the army of Great Britain for the rank of a priest in the Church of God, and is devoting his life to mission work in a large and busy centre of the fishing industry. But in dear little Cairnmouth, where he began his work for Christ, old men love to speak of the Major. End of chapter 11